Hey, everybody, this is Chris Haxel. First, thanks for listening to No Compromise. We hope you'll spread the word and encourage other folks to subscribe. But right now, we'd like to ask you to help us out by telling us what you like about the show and how we could improve by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash survey, all one word. It takes about five minutes, and you'll do us all at No Compromise a huge favor by filling it out. That's npr.org slash survey. Thanks, and here's the episode. Previously on No Compromise. You know, as a female in this, in everything I've done, you, you have to require people to respect you, to communicate with you. And I was like, oh, really? Oh, we're so sorry we offended you. The veil came off. I mean, it was just, oh, you don't actually want to get this done. You're going to call yourself a no-compromise gun rights group. But all you're doing is you're starting the fire and saying you're the only one with a pail of water that can put the fire out. That's political anarchy. Jump on board now. $30 a year, less than 10 cents a day. $30 a year. I am a real person. I have real meetings. Why do you think the doors would be interested? Well, once they have all those names, they can contact them about other issues and possibly raise funds. I believe you're looking for me. Yes, indeed. That's right. Yes, yes. I have to admit, at first I have no idea who he is. That's the sound of me stalling as I scramble to pull up a spreadsheet of all the people we've been calling. Um, you are, are you a reverend? Is that correct? Uh, I am technically, yes. I'm not actively pastoring a church right now, but uh, I'm, I'm still ordained. Reverend Charles D. Lowry. He's on my list, but I haven't even called him yet. Turns out one of the guys I did call called him. I was kind of freaked out. He really didn't want to deceive you, but he wanted to call me before he, uh, <laughs> to let me know about it before uh, he put my name in there because he didn't know. I get it, I tell him. Makes sense. Lisa and I have been trying to get in touch with board members of No Compromise Gun Groups run by The Doors and their friends. We've heard from so many people that these guys are deceptive, scammers even. But the documents we have don't tell a full story, which is why we've been trying to find board members. We know the brothers own a for-profit company that provides printing services and management consulting, and a lot of the money donated to their nonprofits winds up there. This reverend, Charles Lowry, says he was involved with the Georgia Gun Group right from the beginning. It's run by Patrick Parsons, one of the Door Brothers' partners. Violence, death, bloodshed, hatred, riots, all being pushed by radical left-wing... Charles tells me they met almost a decade ago when Patrick walked into his church one Sunday. Patrick came, I guess in 2009, and uh, he said that he was going to start an organization called Gun Owners of Georgia. Or no, Georgia Gun Owners. Georgia Gun Owners. Lowry tells me he's willing to meet in person. Says he'll tell me whatever I want to know. I'm Lisa Hagen. 
and I'm Chris Haxel. This is No Compromise, an NPR investigative series about one family on a mission to reconstruct America using two powerful tools, guns and Facebook. In the last episode, we heard from people on the receiving end of the Door Brothers' scorched earth tactics, people who don't trust their motivations or their accounting practices. In this episode, we find out what the Door Brothers' idea of reconstructing America might actually look like, and how freedom can mean all kinds of things, depending on who you ask. Very much. No problem. Hi. Can we sit outside? Outside, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Just two. Reverend Charles Lowry has me meet him at a Mexican restaurant in Cartersville, Georgia. Wait, uh, do, do you know what? Yeah, I don't. Uh, what I get's not on the menu, so. <laughs> Where he declines a menu from the hostess. They have really good uh, homemade uh, flautas here. They make the. We are now officially in coronavirus times, so the restaurant's outdoor seating seemed like a good idea, except folks keep ordering margaritas. The mixer is loud. Well, I couldn't have picked the worst place. The only reason why I picked it was because it was outside, and I figured we wouldn't—I figured we wouldn't bother anybody, you know. After our flautas, we pack up and try a spot outside a supermarket Starbucks next to a nice big parking lot, where Charles tells me back around 2010, uh, I was a pastor of uh, Antioch Presbyterian Church in Cartersville, Georgia. And, uh, of course, I was living here in Bartow County, so. One Sunday, a friend brings Patrick Parsons to church. This friend is someone Charles trusts. Anyone that he would vouch for, I would tend to think that they were an honest person. Uh, Charles is big into the Second Amendment. This was before it was legal in Georgia to carry guns in churches. At our church, we actually allowed believed we had the constitutional right, and we allowed and we encouraged all members in good standing if they had a carry permit and could be in, you know, with all the rest of the laws to to carry at the church for the protection of the church. Patrick tells Charles he's some kind of lobbyist coming back home to Georgia from out of state. Says he's back to change the gun laws, and he's got a favor to ask. He asked me if I would be willing, that's the best way to put it, if I would be willing to be the president, I think it was the president. Again, it's been ten, it's been over 10 years, so I, but I believe the title was the president. And I was like, well, why do you need me to be a president? And, and his claim, Patrick's claim, was that since he was going to be a lobbyist and would be paid by the organization, that he should not be the president of it. I needed to be the, the figurehead or whatever of the organization because he said it would be a conflict of interest for him to be the, the only paid employee of the group and be in charge of it or whatever. Uh, now, Charles is talking about being the president, but that's not what the actual paperwork says. Just so you know, you weren't the president, you were the CFO. Okay, CFO, okay. Right. <laughs> about a minute later, he has a question for me. What is a CFO, if you don't mind me? I'm not a business person. Chief financial officer. I ha- financial? 
as you might be able to guess from that reaction and the fact that he can only kind of remember the name of Patrick's group, Charles was in no way controlling or directing Georgia gun owners. I hand him a copy of the group's bylaws. It lists all the responsibilities that Georgia gun owners' board members were required to fulfill, like having an annual meeting. Did you ever have board meetings of any kind? No, I never, never had a board meeting. I never had any meeting unless it was me at church, maybe five minutes after with me just sitting talking informally, no minutes, nothing, nothing. And I say that emphatically. Charles says he was just a name on the paperwork, along with another young man who attended his church, Robert Baxter guy I'd already called. Like Georgia Gun Owners, and I understand that you are an agent for the Georgia Gun Owners Alliance, so I wanted to connect with you. Uh, no, I don't think so. Georgia Gun Owners, an agent for the Georgia Gun Owners Alliance. Robbie was a kid. I mean, he was 19 or 20 years old, something like that. I mean, I'd have to check to see his exact age, but I don't think he was old enough to drink. Patrick had found Robbie through Antioch Presbyterian, too. Charles offers to call Robbie up and puts him on speakerphone. Hey, Chuck. Hey, Robbie. I'm here with Lisa Hagen, uh, the reporter lady that called you uh, yesterday. Yeah. And uh, we've got a question for you, okay? Yeah. Do you know that you're on this gun gun owner paperwork until 2015? <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> In fact, Robbie tells us, He was in France for two years, while he was supposedly the group's registered agent. Charles fills him in on what we've been talking about. I was the chief financial officer, the guy who handles the books. Well, I I would have loved to have handled them, but I never saw them. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry he dragged you into it, Robbie. You were young, impressionable, and I should have known better, but... But uh, I would have I would have stopped that if I'd have known about it. But uh. yeah, something you ought to know. See, when all this was going down, Charles wasn't just any kind of pastor. He used to be part of a religious movement that has some really specific goals. It's called Christian Reconstructionism. These people genuinely believe that the Christian church will take over the world, okay? They genuinely believe there will be a golden age of righteousness where the law of God will be the law of all the land and that there will be unbelievers, but no, they'll be so suppressed. They, they you know, it'd be kind of like being in Soviet Russia when you were a, a you know, a spy for the U.S. or something. You, you, you know, you just did. You it's a group Russians. that believes certain conditions have to be met before the second coming of Jesus Christ can happen laws and governments have to be changed. Lowry says, used to be a lot of Christians didn't see the point of getting involved in politics because Jesus is going to come make things right anyway. So here comes the Reconstructionists saying, uh-uh, nope, that's not going to happen. That never, that didn't happen. So what we've got to do is start changing the laws. And, and, and because we don't, we're going to get fed to the lions, basically. The laws they want are the ones in the Old Testament. The Old Testament law would be 
the law of the land, basically. So, for example, uh, like homosexuality would be a uh, would be a capital offense if if seen by two or three witnesses, according to them. Uh, so would bestiality, even adultery, could, could be considered a, a capital offense. Obviously, you'd have to have two or three eyewitnesses for it to be a death penalty offense. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that yeah, absolutely. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com compromise to learn more and get 10% off your first month. You're probably used to scrolling through social media, catching headlines and bits and pieces. And that's a good way to follow the chatter, maybe kill a few hours, but you need a better way to understand the news. That's why NPR has a new daily podcast. It's called Consider This. We don't just catch you up on what's happening. We help you make sense of the day. Because once things make sense, you can get off your phone, maybe go for a walk or something. Listen to Consider This from NPR every day. The crackle of a fire can be such a soothing sound. But there are exceptions. This fire, for instance, is not meant so much to calm as to incite anyone who might see it. We're hearing a Facebook video from 2018. It's a tight shot of a rusty burn barrel. The fire's going pretty good, swirling up in the air. The camera zooms in on the flames, where you can just make out the pages of a book, turning black as they curl at the base of the fire. They're library books, checked out of the Orange City Public Library in Northwest Iowa. Here's a, here's a book called Two Boys Kissing. And it's targeted for youth in the 12 to 13 year range. They're teaching these kids, that the, the, they're not telling them the destiny that, that it's heading them to. It's the destiny of the pit of hell forever. This man is burning children's books about LGBTQ people and their families. There's a little pond behind him. It's a beautiful, breezy day. Man has a salt and pepper beard, white collared shirt, and a suit jacket. No tie. His name is Paul Dorr, proud patriarch of 11 homeschooled children, including Aaron, Ben, and Chris Dorr. This is my first live stream video that I'm doing for the rest of the perishing supporters and Christians throughout uh, Northwest Iowa, throughout the country, hopefully. Uh, my name is Paul Dorr. I'm director of Rescue the Perishing. Rescue the Perishing. By the way, he was convicted of criminal mischief for this book-burning stunt. We've been trying to understand these brothers through their videos, their followers, and their finances. Last episode, we had a half dozen people telling us the Doors and their partners are in it for the money. But it doesn't look like these guys are getting rich exactly. So maybe there's more to it than that? Between all their nonprofit gun groups in 2018, they pulled in about $1.2 million. Divide that by three brothers, plus their friends Patrick and Greg, 
you'd average 240000 bucks per person. But then you have to subtract all their actual expenses, rent, utilities, travel, postage and paper for the mailers. Which, you know, it's not Wayne LaPierre money. And by the way, they all have a bunch of kids. Four, five, seven. Big families get expensive fast, even when you homeschool them. So we got to thinking, maybe this guy, the man who homeschooled the Door Brothers, can offer some clues. We haven't acted for a generation or more, and we're reaping the whirlwind. Our generation and the, and the grandparents before, we must repent. My voice back then was vilified and silenced, sometimes even from the pulpits in this area. May God have mercy on those men, those pulpits, and those elders. Elders and pastors did not stand up against the feminist lies that have ruined young women and neutered... When he's not destroying library books in a park, Paul writes a blog about a lot of things on his mind. The evils of abortion, the inherent sinfulness of public schools, violence against white Christians in South Africa. Local judges he's tangling with, drag queens. He really hates drag queens. And sometimes he posts links to anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about Jews ruining 1920s Germany. All of these topics fall under the same umbrella for Paul. In his own words, he is advancing Christ's kingdom via the law of God. He declined to answer our questions, but he speaks freely about this stuff when he has a like-minded audience. Reconstructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. We're going to get more into the theology stuff later, but for now, let's learn a little more about Paul. Uh, Paul is a uh, former banker. He's a Reconstructionist. He is a uh, homeschooling patriarch uh, with an impressive family. Remember, uh, 11 kids. The host calls them an entire battalion of doors. Paul says he raised them to be fighters. Kids, they've, they haven't had near even what the typical homeschool child had growing up materially. We've taken our children uh, street side for 25 years to preach the gospel, to, to, to confront uh, evil, particularly institutions, uh, churches, uh, phony Christian colleges, political authorities, uh, judicial authorities, uh, whatever it was that was militating against God and his word. Uh, over 20, 25 years, we took the children out with us uh, and, and taught them uh, how to stand for Christ in the public square. Paul says his kids grew up protesting outside of churches, courthouses, any institution that doesn't live up to Paul's religious standards, which most definitely includes abortion clinics. We're talking about the 1980s and 90s, the heyday of anti-abortion violence in this country. Around then, the Door family would often protest with a controversial group called Operation Rescue. Here's the group's founder, Randall Terry, reacting to the murder of abortion provider Dr. George Tiller. He was one of the most evil people on the planet. Every bit as evil as Nazi war criminals. Now, I know that 
that offends some people that are watching this, but it is the truth. It is Terry the truth would lead Operation Rescue members to block entrances to abortion clinics in what he called rescues. And the Dorr family participated in a bunch of them. Many of our children along the way, uh, our two older boys, got to go to prison themselves for a weekend to jail uh, for involving with a rescue. Raising kids to carry on the Reconstructionist cause has been a central mission of Paul Dorr's life. He tells the host, it's been that way since he left his career in banking. We could see the trajectory of where the culture was going. Rescue opened our eyes a lot. Uh, but but we, we planted ourselves and said, let's start with the kids. Let's start here because we know this is not going to be fixed politically. The church is in such disrepair. Let's do what we can to prepare the next generation. One way Paul prepared the next generation was by homeschooling his 11 children. Then there's his day job. He's a political consultant. While his sons mostly focus on guns, Paul works on dismantling public education. He's a hired gun who gets paid to attack public school funding. School districts usually need the approval of local voters to borrow money for new buildings. Residents opposed to the new spending could be landowners who don't want their taxes going up, people who don't have school-aged kids. They'll pay Paul Dorr thousands of dollars to build a campaign against the proposal. How does it work? Well, a lot of it has to do with creating doubt and mistrust um, of your school board or your school leaders, particularly the superintendent. This is John Landgard, superintendent of the Worthington School District in southern Minnesota. When the district wanted to build a new school, he says Paul worked with a local group to set up a Facebook page. He made videos, had people sign petitions. You know the drill. You know, if you believe everything on Facebook, uh, shame on you in my book. And they start generally a Facebook campaign. And Unlike his sons, who build thing. big audiences over time, Paul's strategy is to create the Facebook equivalent of a pop-up store. Shortly before the vote, Paul's group goes on a media blitz. John Landgard says it was tough to counter in real time. We found that a bunch of the information being shared was not truly accurate. It's twisting that information to fit the story. And they tell a pretty good story. He's very good at what he does, in my view, of misleading um, the voters. In Worthington, Voters rejected proposals to pay for a new school five times in recent years. That's despite a huge influx of students. In 2007, the district had about 2,100. Right now, we're running right in that neighborhood of 3,300 students in our district. We had converted um, storage space to small classroom spaces or doubled-up offices. So, there was very little space in any of our buildings that was not being totally utilized for education. Most of the new students are immigrants from Central America, here with their families, who work for the town's biggest employer, a pork processing plant. Last year, the district asked again to get money for a new school. And after six tries in seven years, it finally passed. Barely. It was a rare loss for Paul Dorr. He's worked as a consultant across the Midwest. Reporters with American Public Media found 63 school votes he worked on. 
Paul's side won about 70% of the time. So, Christian Reconstructionism. It's not a specific branch or denomination. It's more like a movement. Christian Reconstructionism was kind of a big deal in the 80s, which is when Paul Doerr says he had his religious awakening. In 1987, PBS aired an hour-long documentary on the movement, hosted by Bill Moyers. The mainstream press says the political influence of the religious right is fading. Ronald Reagan will soon retire to California, and Jerry Falwell is giving up politics to save souls. We're seeing a changing of the guard. The people in this broadcast are Christian Reconstructionists. They believe it's the moral obligation of Christians to recapture every institution of society for Jesus Christ and they're committed to a long grassroots campaign. So the name itself references the fact that adherents want to reconstruct society. Like we explained earlier, Reconstructionists think the second coming of Jesus Christ will only happen after they have reconstructed society to conform with their view of theology. They call it advancing God's kingdom. Every area of American life, law, medicine, media, the arts, business, education, and finally, the civil government must one day be brought under the rule of the righteous. The closest thing Reconstructionism has to a leader is this guy, Rusus John Rushduni. He went by RJ, and he's more like the father of the movement. His writing and philosophy really kicked this whole thing off. RJ Rushduni also started the Chalcedon Foundation, which is like the Christian Reconstruction version of a think tank. It publishes books and keeps audio archives of Reconstructionist thinkers and of Rush Dooney himself. Thus, the goal of modern politics is to make a man guilty in order to enslave him and to have people themselves demand an end to liberty. To have the people demand of Washington and of the U.N., Here are our hands. Put the chains on. We are afraid of liberty. He believes most people choose to live under what he calls spiritual slavery, which, according to Rush Dooney, Christians cannot allow. This, then, is our destiny as Christians. Freedom. And Christians are the only true freedom fighters the world has ever had. The rest offer slavery as freedom. But Rushduni's idea of Christian freedom isn't about saying Merry Christmas or even the ability to practice whatever form of Christianity. For him, freedom only comes through living under what Rushduni says is God's law. Theonomy, as he sees it, requires, among other things, that people be put to death for things like adultery or homosexuality. In that PBS documentary, Bill Moyers asked Rush Dooney himself about this. But you would reinstate the death penalty for some of these or all of these biblical crimes? I wouldn't. But I mean the reconstructed society. Uh, uh, I'm saying that this is what God requires. I'm not saying that everything in the Bible I like. Some of it rubs me the wrong way. But I'm simply saying this is what God requires. This is what God says is justice. Therefore, I don't feel I have a choice. And the agents of God would carry out the laws. 
the civil government would on these things. The civil government? As I learned more about Christian Reconstructionism, I kept seeing these same phrases. Civil government, humanist, like code words, almost. So I called up an expert. My favorite example is calling public schools government schools. Julie Ingersoll is a philosophy and religious studies professor at the University of North Florida. She wrote a book called Building God's Kingdom, Inside the World of Christian Reconstructionism. In the preface, she mentions she used to be married to a Reconstructionist. Julie says in this worldview, there are different types of government. The family is a government, so is the church. And the state, what most people just think of as the government, becomes civil government. So schools that aren't at home or run by the church are called government schools. Humanism is another one of these code words. Rushduni advocates for operating the government under theonomy. Again, God's law. Rejecting God's law, or at least Rushduni's interpretation of it, means you're choosing human law, which is sinful. Just last year, Chris Dorr, the guy who runs Ohio Gun Owners, posted about theonomy on his personal Facebook page. He thanks a couple Reconstructionist thinkers for putting him on his career path. Then he hashtags the post, Theonomic Reconstructionist Ballbuster Extraordinaire. I asked Julie if Rushduni's ideas work in a multicultural society like the United States. Not in a multicultural society. There's God's authority, and then there's all other religions, all other political systems, everything else other than their form of biblical Christianity is all lumped into the same category that's called humanism. And there's no in-between. There's God's truth, God's authority, and then there's humanism, which is the claim to the authority of human rationality. So there's no, in other words, there's no room for compromise. No room for compromise, no, no, no room for pluralism. For them, pluralism is idolatry. So you, you can't have a multicultural society where, where there are Jews and Muslims and Catholics and Hindus, that those are all idolatrous systems. Um, and their understanding of a political society is a society that is, is rooted in patriarchal families. Women serve their husbands stay at home, raise lots of Christian kids. That's the dream Paul's working towards. Unlike the nightmare he sees around him now. But county governments, city governments, school governments that I work in in nine states are being turned over to a brutal, cruel, oppressive class of women. If you look at the biblical orientation of husband and wife, headship, uh, servant, all the things that God has prescribed, when we've thrown that all up in the air, we have some very cruel women running these offices who oppress uh, the people who come in over the counter and so forth. Many of them have lost their role in understanding of what's going on, and they've become these very uh, brutal uh, people. Next slide, please. In his consulting work, Paul says he'll often give his clients copies of books on theonomy and reconstructionism. This is after they've gotten to know him a bit. Let me back up a second and explain why I spend so much of my time on <clears throat> defunding government education. 
I'll give you my reason. It's almost always not my client's reason, but it's my personal reason. <clears throat> I work at this because I have a deep, passionate abhorrence of government schools. I'm dedicating my life to see them and to pass on the vision on to my children and children's children to see that institution one day be gone and restore education back into the hands of the families, the parents, and the Christians primarily. Julie says Reconstructionists laid out a plan decades ago to wipe out public education. Reconstructionists should run for school board, attack school funding. Their goal is to eliminate public education and to replace it with Christian schooling and Christian homeschooling. Um, and they are seeing lots and lots of success at this. In their gun videos, every now and then, Aaron, Ben, and Chris give a little taste of their views on education. Here's Chris talking about all the reasons he thinks mass shootings happen, all the reasons besides guns. Do our schools contribute to this problem? I'm not talking about specific teachers. I'm talking about the system as a whole. Do our schools teaching kids that there is no right and wrong, do whatever feels right, does this contribute to the problem? To be really controversial, does taking God out of the schools, does that contribute to the problem? R.J. Rushduni, the father of Reconstructionism, died in 2001. And ever since, the Christian Reconstruction movement has splintered. But honestly, some of its ideas are kind of thriving. Take Ron Paul, father of U.S. Senator Rand Paul, longtime congressman and former libertarian presidential candidate. We told you earlier about the Ron Paul endorsement scandal Aaron and Chris Dorr were involved in. Their dad worked for the Ron Paul campaign. Ron Paul doesn't call himself a Reconstructionist so far as I know, but the Constitution Party was founded by Howard Phillips, who was a who identified clearly as a Reconstructionist. And if you go to the Constitution Party website and you read the positions that the Constitution Party takes, it's exactly Christian Reconstructionists. The Constitution Party has at times listed Ron Paul as its presidential nominee, and he endorsed the party's candidate in 2008. So this is what I'm talking about, this influence, right? So does that make him a Christian Reconstructionist? Not necessarily. Does he believe all the same things that Christian Reconstructionists believe? Yes. Uh, Reconstructing society doesn't stop at public education. Rush Dooney, Paul Doerr, they want to eliminate government spending on everything they see as non-biblical. Things like Social Security, highways, you name it. As I'm talking to Julie, I tell her a bit about Paul's sons, the Doerr brothers, how they're gun rights activists who sometimes slip theology into their videos. Remember when Lisa went to that big rally and asked Aaron Doerr about gun control? So you don't like these ideas because you think they don't work or because Oh, no, we have, a, we have an absolute a divine right from God and enshrined in our Constitution to keep and bear firearms. That's Julie that. says the strict patriarchal view of family, similar to what we heard from Paul Doerr, helps explain how a Reconstructionist might think about guns. One of the primary responsibilities of the family is defense of the family. So when you hear them talk about their God-given right to own guns, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the way that God delegated authority to fathers to protect their families. And so whatever method of protection is the most 
relevant in a particular context falls under this principle. So they, they believe that the Bible clearly says that it's not just a right for families to own guns, but it's a kind of a moral obligation. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe has everything you need to protect your home. Professional monitoring keeps watch day and night, ready to send police, fire, or medical professionals if there's an emergency. You can set it up yourself in under an hour. Head to simplysafe.com/compromise and get a free HD camera with the purchase of a security system. The past is never past, and every headline has a history. I'm Ramtin Arablouei. I'm Rand Abdel Fattah, and we're the hosts of Throughline, NPR's history podcast. Each week, we go back in time to better understand the present, bringing lesser-known stories and perspectives to the surface. Subscribe and listen to Throughline from NPR. In case you're thinking all this Reconstructionism stuff is a relic of the 60s or even the 80s, here's a Reconstructionist sermon from August 2020. Cannot do it. The first thing you'll find uh, when you spend any time on the Black Lives Matter organization website is an intensely racist organization that if there were white counterparts to it, we would immediately uh, be marched against because they are all about and exclusively for blackness in everything. And in many respects, it is a political front for sodomy and transgenderism, a a commitment to the abolition of the family. That's from a church in Georgia. Now, Reconstructionist hashtags aside, we don't know how much of R.J. Rushduni's teachings the Door brothers or their friends believe in or not. We'd love to know more about the Door Brothers' current beliefs and whether those beliefs influence their views on guns and everything else. But they've stopped talking to us. We do know a lot of people who would call themselves Reconstructionists attend very conservative Presbyterian churches, just like the ones Aaron, Ben, and Chris Door say they go to. Anyway, once we start looking at the doors through this lens of Reconstructionism, we see connections everywhere. The Constitution Party Julie mentioned, one of its former vice presidential candidates is on the board of the Missouri Firearms Coalition. At least a couple members of the Door family attended a tiny and short-lived Reconstructionist school in Lynchburg, Virginia called Christ College. The college president, Chris Door's father-in-law, and its former chaplain is on the board of Ohio gun owners. But these days, not everyone who might share Reconstructionist beliefs is as public about them as Paul Doerr. Let's go back to where we started this episode. My conversation in Cartersville, Georgia, with Reverend Charles Lowry. We talked a long time, and he explained a lot to me about Reconstructionism, about why he largely left it behind. It's the idea of of you have a bunch of kids and eventually we'll outnumber everybody, okay? Uh, problem with it is they have so many kids and they can't keep up with them and their kids are like, I don't want to be a part of this. I, I never even got to see dad because, you know, so they don't do it and it doesn't work. Charles says it's a tough way to live. In the Christian church today, if you hear theonomy, people start picking up the bricks to throw at you, okay? Because they know how much trouble it's caused, particularly in the Presbyterian movement. 
And even if someone's never heard about the trouble... What do they do nowadays? They go home, they get on Google, and they go look it up, and they get this guy named R.J. Rushton who denied that the Holocaust basically happened. They see that, and they're like, what? Holocaust denial is just one of many quite extreme side notes that are gonna pop up in any cursory Rushduni Google. Remember when he was talking about the spiritual slavery of not living under Old Testament law? That was from a 1996 speech called A Return to Slavery. Here's what he said about American slavery. The treatment of the slaves on the whole was good and indulgent. They were valued private property. Most of the slaves were unwilling to see slavery end. Rushduni goes on for the better part of an hour dismissing the enslavement of black people by southern whites as really not that bad. He's riffed on this idea in variations of this speech over and over. There have been occasionally bad masters. It is true also that there are occasionally sadistic and vicious parents. But shall we condemn parenthood because of such persons? He really liked to minimize the violence inflicted on Black people over 400 years of their enslavement. Generations of people who were raped, tortured, and murdered to fuel a global economy that defined them as less than human. Denying that history is textbook racism. In churches today, Charles says pastors can teach Rushduni's ideas without repeating the worst things he said. So it's like anything else. You want to try to fly low under the radar and kind of, you don't want to use terms that might run people off. What you want to do is teach the same thing, but do it in uh do it in a way that doesn't cause buzzwords for people to start looking up because let's say Remember, he used to be a reconstructionist pastor. And he says while the movement itself has always been pretty small, its early thought leaders were prolific writers and speakers. They're the only, Christian Reconstructionism is the only group that write on politics for Christians. That's their, I mean, almost all their books have to do with the, 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 the government, polit- political matters, okay? Government, economics, etc. Charles says if you're a Christian today whose politics swing to the right, chances are you've encountered the work of Reconstructionists, whether through a sermon or a book or a blog. And most scholars of Rush Dooney agree his biggest impact has been the success of Christian homeschooling. He basically made that possible because when all the lawsuits would happen and they would try to prevent parents from doing it, he was the one they would call to testify in the court trials, and he was so convincing with his uh, argumentation that he, um, I mean, he, he, he really, he is, in a sense, the father of the modern homeschooling movement. But now we're beginning to think there's another big area of Reconstructionist influence, one that's been largely overlooked. Gun rights. You see, while Rush Dooney was busy fathering modern homeschooling, he had some good friends who really loved guns. Next time, 
the original No Compromisers. As one of the bumper stickers says, the Second Amendment ain't about duck hunting. And the company they kept. That's what these people are all about, creating an all-white territory. That's a whites-only territory. That's the definition of white nationalism, to create a white nation. If we're going to beat these people, we have to come up with something new. So we can't, we can't play their game any longer. We're playing a power game. Law is a power game. All right, so the third system is called leaderless resistance. But of course, we know better. We call it following the mandates given to us by our God. No Compromise is us, Chris Haxel and Lisa Hagen. The show is produced by Graham Smith and edited by Robert Little of NPR's Investigations Unit. Josh Rogerson and Stephen Key are our sound engineers. Sound designed by Josh and Graham. Our music comes from Peter Duchesne, Brad Honeyman, and the Hump Muscle Rolling Circus. Big ups Rob Braswell, Dean Clegg, and Keith Richards. Special thanks to Sarah McCammon, Chris Turpin, and our friends at StoryLab. Michael May, Alex Goldmark, Bruce Oster, and Cheryl W. Thompson. And thanks as well to our colleagues at the Guns in America Reporting Collaborative. Also, thank you, Mara Friedman and Caitlin Kolarik. No Compromise is a production of NPR, working in partnership with KCUR in Kansas City, WABE in Atlanta, and WAMU in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm.